Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. You know, he was taking Percocet and Roxy's and, you know, he went there and when he did his urine test, it didn't come up for Oxy, it came up for fentanyl. So this whole time he thinks he's doing Percocet and he's, you you can't get anything out there anymore. So if you're out there right now, you know, in any stage, you were playing Russian roulette with your life with the with the opiates and the benzos and whatever I was doing. But now you might as well put a bullet in a gun, spin the wheel and put it to your head because that's what you're doing. Inside the 5150 Studios, this is Knocking Doors Down, a podcast about ending the stigma around addiction and mental health issues. Your host, Jason here, background of alcoholism, some childhood trauma. My co-host over there, Uncle Mikey. What is going on, people? Eh, he's been busted a time or two. Yeah, what are you going to do? Struggles a little bit with some anxiety in other areas. But, uh, hey, we're all about talking with people that take all of these uh, matters and issues, openly talk about them to destigmatize it. And, uh, well, that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. That's Pushing right. through. And our guest this week, the author of That's What Junkies Do, Thomas Figlioli. Fig Newton. Figgy. Cool guy. Figlioli. Great to talk to. Uh, interesting to hear his perspective. Of course, we. Uh, it's funny because he works in sanitation in New York, so we do make some uh, mob reference jokes, but he actually did have family ties, and you will hear how that did cause him some trauma in his youth as it relates to his parents. Uh, overall, a fun guy, though. How and, can you uh, not reference the Sopranos in that? He right? lives in New, you know, the East Coast, and you know, he works in sanitation. Yeah, what are you going to do? Sanitation. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, but uh, it w- not only do we have a good time talking to him, but he does really dive deep into how he c- fell in towards his addiction and got out of it. Uh, really inspirational guy. Does a lot of work around the local community and connecting, especially with the youth and other groups. And uh, just a real pleasure to speak to. And his book is great. Uh, if you are interested in the book, that's what junkies do. The link is in the description. So uh, please uh, click it, check it out, get it there on Amazon. Yeah, check it out. It's definitely a good one. I mean, they're all good, but this one's good too. Absolutely. And of course, we can't do any of this without 5150 LTM because we live the madness. Yes, we do. And uh, you listeners of the Knocking Doors Down podcast, we offer you 20% off at checkout by using the code KDD20. What was it? KDD20. That's KDD20, the numerics. You get 20% off at checkout. Sick. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Welcoming to the uh, podcast, we got uh, Fig Newton himself. What's going on, good sir? What's going on, Jason? How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to speak with you, uh, Thomas Figlioli. Of course, a great book. Uh, That's what junkies do. Thank you again for sending me a copy. I am almost done with it, so I've jumped around, but uh, an excellent read for uh, anybody that wants to hear... uh, 
your life story. Of course, uh, if you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, we got the link in the description on how you can find uh, Tommy's book. And uh, it, it's a great read, man, and really encouraging and really bold of you to put it all out there. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, you know, everybody said that to me when I when I decided to write it. I I always liked reading memoirs, especially addiction memoirs, real life stuff. I like reading mafia memoirs too, which is something I grew up around, and I you know I'm really interested in it. And when I got out of treatment the last time, my sponsor had made me write uh, my first step out, mm. and he wanted to know why you know where my life was unmanageable with alcohol and before before alcohol before drugs came into the picture. And I sat down, I wrote that, and by writing that, it kind of sparked something in my mind. And, um, you know, I would speak at meetings, would speak at rehabs, doing service, and uh, those stories I would tell, I started writing them. Yeah. And I started in my iPhone notepad, you know, I was just jotting them down. And, you know, I worked for the New York City Department of Sanitation. <laughs> and back then I was on a garbage truck and I was working with this guy one day and I asked him to read one of the stories. And uh, he read it and he looked at me and he just said, listen, he goes, I don't know what you're doing hanging out with us. He said, but you have a talent. He goes, and you should pursue it. And from there, you know, I just started writing and it just kind of took on a mind of its own. And yeah. uh, three years later, the book was out. Yeah. You said uh, sanitation and then mafia memoir. Am I the only one who thought of Tony <laughs> Soprano? Am I the only one who thought Tony Soprano? <laughs> He's not working you know, with I cement got, mixers. Because I love I mafia got, movies, shows, all that. I love that. So uh, yeah, if I'm the only one, I got, I'll shut up. But <laughs> No, I have a funny story. I, was, I went to Atlantic City. This was years ago. And um, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and we were in the front row at a comedy show. And... You know, he starts in on both of us and right next to me was this older couple from Connecticut. So he starts in on them and then he comes to me and, you know, he's in on my girlfriend and me and he's like, oh, so where are you from? And at the time I lived in Brooklyn. So I was like, oh, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. He goes, and what do you do for a living? I'm like, sanitation. He goes, I'm sorry. And he went back to the other <laughs> <from> Connecticut. <laughs> you damn fucking right. You're sorry. Get away from me. <laughs> But it's not that sanitation. <laughs> uh, but you also mentioned, it, you know, kind of writing in the stuff where life first became unmanageable, which is such an interesting thing that I've started to look at. Where did you really identify that? Because you talk very vividly about your childhood, <laughs> especially stuff relating to your dad. Yeah, um, it started early. You know, there was, I started the book, you know, with my intro and then, you know, with when I hit the kid in the head with the bat. Right. But even before that, you know, I tell a story too that um, when I was a kid, we used to collect baseball cards, you know, and all my friends would go out and buy boxes and I didn't have the money to buy them. I could just buy packs at a time. So when my parents were at work, I would go into my father's room and I would empty out his quarters. He had like this big jar of quarters that he was saving for a supposed trip to Italy that we never went on. <laughs> and, um, you know, I would empty $13 in quarters. I would go down to the store, buy the cards and then... I would open them in front of my friends and brag about it. And then my friend ratted on me and I got caught, but I kept doing it. But then I would do it and I would go and I would sneak into my own house and open the cards in private because I couldn't let anybody see me. So I was like seven years old doing this stuff. Right. And like, I look back on that and I would get a high from it. You know, I would get a high from stealing the quarters. I would get a high from opening the cards, but I was already hiding it from people. Right. You know, I had to hide it from my friends because I didn't want to get caught. And it was just stuff like that, you know, that the, the fear and anxiety that I didn't know I had at the time and um, just always trying to fit in and be different. You know, never, never, never comfortable in my own skin from a very young age. Yeah, totally understand that. 
do you think it was kind of the 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 home life and stuff of that nature that made it uncomfortable? Was there a uh, lot of I, I you know I kind of got from it the relationship, especially you know maybe I might be insightful to talk a little bit about about your dad there because you you say normal childhood, but then you do go into some of your dad's behaviors, and for me that was like a okay I can gel with you there. Yeah, so normal in a sense that they put on a good front. You know, my parents, I was young, so I didn't really know what was going on. I knew my father was different, you know. I was wise enough to see, you know, the money and the car and the jewelry and all that stuff and the way he the way he acted, his bravado, and, you know, he was different. That being said, you know, I never really suffered from any of that when I was really young because he was always taking me, you know, Met games, Jet games, Ranger games, you know, two vacations a year I talk about in the book. Right. And when we were around other people, you know, my parents were fine. Like, they got along at times. My father was a very, aside from, you know, the adultery and the gambling and the, the crime, yeah, he was a very magnetic guy, a very charming guy. So he was very light. To this day, I still see people and they still talk about how great he was and how funny he was. But... You know, behind closed doors, there was a lot of stuff going on that as a young kid, I didn't realize. But as I started to get older, I started to see it, you know, and uh, I go back to this one time. My father owned a car service in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And um, every time I went there, there was always this guy that lived next door to it. He would always give me money. And I realized later on that my father's car service was the only one in like a 10 mile radius because that was the only one they would allow there. And it was a front. Right. But. You know, my father came home one night and there was a, a cockroach on his jacket arm and my mother killed it. And then they argued for like two hours over whose roach it was. Like my father's like, that's not my roach. I know what my roaches look like in my office and my mother. And it, w- it wasn't over a roach. Like, you know, in Bronx Tale when he says it wasn't over a parking spot. Right. No, it wasn't over a roach. It was over all the stuff that was boiling down underneath that I didn't know about. Yeah. And my parents didn't talk for like six months after that. Jeez. And, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about growing up in abusive households and yelling and screaming as an only child growing up in a household where two people don't talk to each other. That's terrible because you could cut the tension with a knife and you can see how they just don't want to be around each other, you know, and they didn't start talking again until my father had open heart surgery. I was in like fourth grade and I, I never forget them coming home and telling me. And in one sense, I was I was upset that my father had to get heart surgery. But in the other sense, I was so happy because my parents were talking to each other for the first time in six months. So, yeah, it was uh, normal in a sense. But, you know, it, looking back on it, it was it was dysfunctional, you know, and um, I guess it did have an impact on my life growing up. You know, as in the book, I, I talk about how years later, he eventually the marriage breaks apart. And that's kind of where I really go off you know, yeah. on my own and uh, get into all this other stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like witnessing that with your parents at such a young age had an impact with you and your future relationships as you got older? Um, not really. I've always, I, I think it had a better effect because I feel like I, I try to communicate more. Yeah. You knew what in, you didn't sobri- want. Yeah. yeah. It's sobriety. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was active, you know, my relationships were terrible. welcome to the club (laughs) (laughs) but it's right you know i'm i'm married four years but i'm with my wife 11 11 years and uh you know we have a great marriage and communication is probably the best part of it like she's crazy i make fun of her all the time she sat next to me on the couch the other night and she's asking me 
why do you love me? I want I want to know reasons. I want a list. And I'm like, are you serious right now? I'm trying to watch oh, the night game. Leave boy. me alone. Oh, geez. But it's stuff like that. Like, that's why we, I said, this is why I love you. She's like, why? Because we sit here and bicker all the time. I'm like, no, it's these conversations. It's being this comfortable with somebody and being able to do that. So like, just sit on the couch and talk about this nonsense <laughs> and just have a great time doing it, you know? And, um, you know, I, I say this and I'm not tooting my own horn and people might not believe me, but I have never cheated on a woman in my life. Hey, me either, buddy. Awesome. That's what I'm talking and, about. Yep. And it was the one thing, you know, everybody was telling me, don't do drugs, don't drink, don't gamble, don't do this, don't do that, because look what happened to this one, look what happened to that one. It was the only thing that I saw my father do that I was like, I'm never going to do that because I saw what it did to my mother and I... I never want to do that to another person. And I tell my wife all the time. My wife always says, oh, what do you got? You're going out to see your girlfriend? I said, I will divorce you before I cheat on you. Mm -hmm. If it came to that. Sure. And she's like, that's supposed to make me feel better. But I don't mean it like that. I just mean I would never do that to somebody because I saw the damage that it did. And it just stuck with me my whole life. So I, and all in all, I think seeing my, my parents' relationship has made me better at my marriage. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You knew what you didn't want as far as a relationship. Yeah. You know, it can easily go the other way with some people because that can be normal to them and they could think that that awkward tension is normal. But, you know, you t went the other way, which is the better way. And another thing I heard, we got to go to the East Coast to find a woman because I have yet <laughs> to find one that'll sit down and watch a Niner game with me. Is it almost oh, over? No, she won't. Is it almost over? <laughs> She'll sit down next to me and complain the whole time. She asked me. The, she asked me. She asked me the other night if David Wright still plays for third base for the Mets. It's like he retired five years ago, you know. So she'll sit next to me, but she doesn't really pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all right. We each need our own shit, right? Yeah. No, we definitely do. Well, I, that makes it. That's really interesting because you know, following into the addiction, I know that my behavior, especially relationship and where my stuff started at. So I commend you for never. Uh, cheating on anyone but we, we did talk about with childhood that first uh, you know the rush of hiding stuff so when is it that all that the the drugs or alcohol which was kind of first that came into play for you because you speak in your book about you know you were different but still wanting to fit in and kind of you know following the leader so to speak yeah so uh 16 years old my parents split up and, you know, I really, I saw my father like three times after that. And he died when I was 21 years old. Oh, and, um, you know, I lived, again, I was an only child. So all I really had were my friends. Like my cousins lived in my house, but they were older than me. My cousin Michael was 13 years older than me. My cousin Stephanie was 17 years older than me. Great people. They're like my brother and sister to this day. But as a 16-year-old kid, Kid, I you know I couldn't go to them and they were doing their own thing so I gravitated towards you know kids in the street and those guys that I looked up to as as a young kid that were on my block you know telling me to go hit a kid in the head with the bat and me listening to them you know they're out on the corners and they're in the schoolyards and they're, they're drinking beer and they're smoking cigarettes and there was a kid that I had played baseball with he was my age and we were really good friends we had a little bit of a falling out and um, I saw him one night walking out the block and he was with these two beautiful girls and he was smoking a cigarette and he was drinking a Budweiser bottle. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, like I want to talk to those girls, but I'm afraid to talk to those girls. <laughs> but in my head, I guess I put two and two together. I said, maybe if, you know, maybe if I drink beer and smoke cigarettes, you know, maybe I could talk to those girls. 
And that's really as simple as it was, you know, that I think that night I stole a Marlboro red from my cousin and I smoked it in my bathroom, you know, and I got sick and I ratted myself out, told my mother, I smoked, I'll never do it again. And then two weeks later, I was hired and packed some Marlboro lights in my mailbox, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, they used to hang out in this schoolyard up the block from my house. And it was just like everybody from all these neighborhoods just hung out. There was like a hundred kids there every night. And, um, you know, I wanted to go up there and it just wasn't comfortable. I was scared. I was scared sure. to go up there. And then one night we had a party, me and my friends, bought a bottle of vodka, a bottle of peach snaps. That was the first time I got drunk, you know, and uh, I hear a lot of people say when as soon as that drink hit my lips, I was home. I knew I was all right. And it wasn't the case with me. But after I drank and then I went to a party, I was talking to this girl that I liked and I didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. I went right up to her. I talked to her. And I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I was funny. Everything flowed. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, my God, this stuff works. You know, and two weeks later, I was up in that schoolyard with those kids, you know, drinking 40s, smoking cigarettes. And that's where it started, you know, 16 years old. And it just never stopped. More headed your way with Thomas Figlioli. We'll be back on Knocking Doors Down. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. I can imagine it's a really tough time for your mom, obviously, the divorce and then having a, you know, teenage son and probably she's having to work or hold down a job or two. And Yeah, two jobs. She works seven days a week. And, um, you know, my and my aunt lived with us and that was a huge help. You know, my aunt was like my second mother. She helped raise me. I talk about her. I She has a chapter in my book about her. You know, she passed away too in 2004. Um, you know, she was... Uh, she was probably the most important person in my life because she was my mother, but a lot more street smart and savvy. And I could go to her with anything. Like she was my aunt, but she was my friend. Right. You know, and I could tell her all these things. And good part about it is she understood. I guess not so good part about it looking back is she defended me a lot to my mother, saying that it was normal that I was doing this stuff. I was a kid and, you know, not to worry because I'll grow out of it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I never did. Well, you did because we're talking now, but it just took longer yeah. than you wanted. Yeah, it took a lot longer than it should have. But um, um, yeah, it was definitely tough for my mother, you know, and I, I look back on it. I can't imagine what she was going through, but um, you know, that's why I do what I do today. I try to make up for it you know, as much as I can. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that living amends. Uh, what uh, We always like to ask because, you know, it, it, I get where you're saying like it wasn't fun at first, but then I realizing, wow, I didn't have... I had a little bit of confidence, that liquid courage. Was there actually any period of it that was like fun? We ha- I had fun and then it hit that point of like, holy shit, this has gotten way more unmanageable. Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun at first. Like I said, it didn't, as soon as I drank, it didn't hit me. But later that night, I realized what I could do with this stuff. 
and I loved doing it. I didn't want to do anything else. You know, I was a high school hockey player. I think I quit the team about a month later because I just wanted to drink and hang out, you know, and then I went to college. I was in college for five years. I was one big party. I, I you know, in the book, I call it a big party with a $20,000 a year cover charge. <laughs> yeah, and, no shit. You know, right? a, a girl I went to school with just read the book the other day and she called me. She said, that was so right on point because that's exactly what it was. <laughs> right. You know, and I always said, you know, everybody drinks like me, everybody drinks like me, but that wasn't the case. You know, I was drinking with a different group of people every night and I never went to class. You know, it took me five years to graduate and it would have been easier if I just did the work. And you know, I, I was never went to class, never did the work. I would take the tests, do halfway decent and then have to go and beg teachers for grades. And oh my God, my parents got divorced and I can't afford it. I need my scholarship. And it was a disaster, yeah. complete disaster. That's, but it was fun. You know, I had a lot of fun doing it. If it makes you feel better, it took me seven years to graduate college. So you're 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 ahead of I'm me. I'm two years ahead of you. <laughs> and to make both of you feel better, I didn't go to college. So <laughs> there you go. There but you, you go. but you were a really good student, though. I mean, which kind of shows your superpower. You're just an intelligent guy, and and you read the you wrote the book yourself, right? There wasn't yes, a ghost I did. yeah. Yes, I did. So it's um, incredibly impressive. But you're an intelligent guy. You you were a good student, but. You weren't an attender of class. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, up until up until my freshman year of college, I had never failed a class. I was there on scholarship, and my first semester, I failed five classes because I just never went to class. Mm. Never. I drank every night, all that pleasure fraternity, and I just drank all day and night, every day, every night for four months, whatever it was. I got put on probation, academic probation, and then the next semester, I went back, and I just they gave me a, a deal. They said, if you get above a 3.0 this second semester, you can't have your scholarship back, but we'll give you a grant to subsidize because I gave them the whole, my parents got divorced and my mother can't afford it act. And uh, I went back like it was nothing. You know, I still drank, but I did enough to do well. And I got like a three, four GPA. Hmm. And then the second year I did the same thing. And I did it every year after that. You know, I would do terrible and then I would just pick it up. You know, it was uh, it was never about intelligence. It was just about me wanting to do one thing and not the other. All right. What was the scholarship for? Uh, it was the Dean's Business Scholarship at Pace University. So it was for business administration. Mm. And how did and you, that's what I graduated with. How did you even get that scholarship? I applied for it when I was in high school. And between my grades and my SAT scores, and they just awarded it to me. Yeah. So is it, was schooling just kind of came more natural to you or? It did, yeah, it did. And, you know, grammar school, high school, it's easy. You know, then when you go to college, you actually kind of have to work a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to do that, <laughs> you know. But, it's you know, I say it all the time. If I put half effort into it, I would have wound up, you know, with a 3.7 GPA. You know, I, I basically put about 20% in and still graduated. Right. So. What did life look like post-college? Post-college, I, uh, so two, uh, I graduated in 98 and I was, 23 years old and I had gotten a job in this Irish bar in town. I went to college in Pleasantville, New York, a town in Westchester. And um, I was hanging out in this bar so much that the guy just gave me a job there. The name of the bar was Foley's Club Lounge. It was a small Irish bar, a lot of cops, um, firemen, older people, and the owner wanted a college crowd. So me and a couple of my friends used to go there just because we liked it, we liked the food. And he offered me a job. You know, and I started working for him and he was great. He was about 
he was like 38, 39 years old when he hired me. And um, I was always looking for that father figure, you know, always looking for that guy to look up to. And he was that for a time. And, um, you know, I worked in that bar. And when I graduated, I didn't want to leave. You know, I didn't want to leave that life. I didn't want to leave that town. So I wound up getting a job off um, an apartment off campus. I work in that place. And my mother's like, oh, you got to get a job. You got to get a job. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'll get a job. And, you know, I get a call from a guy in Brooklyn and he offers me a job being a bookmaker for him. You know, he was a connected guy and he ran a business, a bookie business. And he, he knew that I was into gambling. So he asked me if I wanted to do it with him. And then when I told him I had all these people with me, he said, oh, well, if you do this, I'll give you a percentage. And I became a bookie, you know, and um, that's what I did. You know, I was a bartender and a bookie. And, uh, you know, I thought I was, like you said, Tony Soprano. I, <laughs> I went out, I bought the pinky ring. I was wearing the, you know, the track suits. Yeah, I, I was like, this is it. You know, I've arrived. I and, have- uh I have a pinky ring in a truck. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it was crazy because I was the girl I was with at the time didn't want any part of that. You know, she's right. like, you have to do something with your life. And she gave me an ultimatum and I chose I, I didn't want to stop living the life I was living. So, you know, she leaves me and now I'm, I have to go back out there. You know, I have to go back out and find another girl and I'm hanging out with different people. And again, like I'm still that scared little kid. Yeah. And I'm 23 years old, but I never... I never dealt with any of that. I picked up alcohol and that solved everything. So I, I don't know how to live normal. Mm-hmm. And now these people I'm hanging out with, they, you know, they were doing ecstasy. So one night, you know, the kid came in, he goes, yeah, take one. And I was scared to take ecstasy because I heard, I was like, oh my God, my heart's going to explode, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, took, I took one pill that night and then I wound up taking seven that night. Oh, fuck. And then I took it every day for like six months straight. And then one night I went to get it and he didn't have it. And he handed me a foil packet and it was cocaine, you know, and I, that was uh, back then that was one of those lines I didn't want to cross. You know, I just cocaine to me was a hard, it is a hard drug, but like back then that was like, Oh my God, cocaine. I think of Len bias and friggin' um, the movie, new Jack city. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I thought. Scarface. I think cocaine is this awful, awful thing that I never wanted to do. And all those thoughts went through my head and I grabbed the foil packet from him. I went in the bathroom. You know, I did my first line and I never drank again without cocaine. Mm. You know, I fell in love and it was all to the races after that. It was every, every night. And within two years I burnt every bridge I had up there, you know, and, uh, I wound up having to move back to Brooklyn and that's where I get the job in the, you know, with the wall street firm. Yeah. But I, you know, I had interned in that spot when I was a kid. You know, from 15 to 21, I worked there in the summers and I worked there like after school certain days of the week. So they all know me as this little kid. And now I come back with a college degree. They gave me a real job making good money, thinking that I'm that same guy. And I just wasn't that guy, right. you know. And when I moved back to Brooklyn, I said, I got to stop doing coke because I'm out of control. But if I could drink and smoke weed, I'll be fine. Because when I was doing that, I wasn't stealing anything. I, people weren't intervening on me. Nobody was telling me I needed to go to rehab or I had a problem. So if I just drink and smoke weed, I'll be good. And I did that for like two weeks. And then one Friday night, I'm talking to my friend and I'm like, I, I say, I used to get that bell in my head. After a certain amount of alcohol, I just needed to have Coke. Sure. And I asked my friend and he knew where to get it. And that was it, you know. 
off to the races after that. You know, it's really interesting to hear what your drug, when you hear cocaine, was just like, whoa, that was just next level. But when I was doing cocaine, I would hear like ecstasy and be like, oh, no, 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 no. fuck that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's really interesting to hear. And I feel like it's pretty, everybody's top, oh, no, 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 was heroin. I think that would be pretty safe to say, you know, the needles and all that. But yeah, that's interesting how you were nervous to, or well, not nervous, but just tried the one and then did seven. Like, do you remember how the seven or eight, I guess it would be eight, made you feel? I wound up. I lived with this kid. His name was Brinsley, mm-hmm. big Irish kid from Boston. He was my partner in the bookmaking operation. He was my roommate for my last year of college. Very good friends with him. And um, he winds up coming out of the house at like 630 in the morning. It was a Sunday. It was a Sunday morning. It was a Saturday night that I took it. Mm-hmm. And I was outside with no shirt on playing basketball. And I wanted to go to church. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, come on, let's go to church. And I made him walk with me all the way down this, it was Bedford Road in Westchester. I had no shirt on and we walked all the way to this church. And I looked, I said, I can't go to the church with no shirt on. And I made this kid walk all the way back. Mm. And I, I loved it. I did it every day after that for like six months. I loved ecstasy, you know? Wow. Fucking say, see, see, that's <laughs> it again. The interesting thing for me, like, okay, been presented Coke. Yeah. Tried it. We definitely went to college for seven years. Bobby booze, my thing, but like, friends when it was like ecstasy is like oh no you guys dance till your feet bleed fuck that shit i'm gonna just go pound a 12 pack and drive home like any of it's normal and okay it's just the the fucked up part of the addict brain well it's crazy too like how quick a mind can change because prior to taking your first pill you were afraid of your heart stopping i was eight pills later on that same night is just you know that's that's insane that you're still here Oh, which absolutely. we're, which we're all that glad. Was, we're all that, glad. That was that. Yeah, that was nothing. I mean, uh, it gets far worse, you know, as time goes on. And with the ecstasy too, I used to take it for no reason. You know, I remember one year the Mets. It was that. It was '99, and the Mets had opened up in Japan, and they played at like six in the morning. So I worked at the bar, and we stayed there till like four. And then as we're leaving, I, you know, I put a pill in my mouth, and my friend's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm gonna take some E." He's like, why? I was like, I'm going to go home and watch the Met game. <laughs> He's like, you're going to go home and sit in your living room at six in the morning, tripping on E, watching the match. I'm like, yeah. He's like, bro, he goes, you're, good. He goes, you're not going to be able to do anything normally anymore after this. And uh, But that's the insanity. Like, I just did it to do it. I didn't do it to like, go out dancing. I, I like taking ecstasy and sitting on my couch and hanging out. Yeah. I just love the feeling. And what, you know? what what actually would the experience be like to sit and watch a bas- or baseball game on ecstasy? Because to me, it, it is that mind-baffling thing. Of like, I think of it, the people that I knew that did it was the party drug, you know? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just felt really good watching the Met game. You know, I was by myself. It was 6 in the morning. There was nobody around, you know, drinking a lot of water, eating a lot of vitamin C drops. I mean, it's just insanity. Right. You know, very, uh, very insane. Yeah, but it was but, uh, crazy. I bet you're pretty fucking manic, right? Oh, I forgot the chips and dips. Hold on, I'll be right back. Yeah, no, it's 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 nuts. You know, it, it's oh, crazy looking God. back on it, the things you do. But uh, you know, like I said, I fast forward, and you know, now I'm back in Brooklyn. I'm 25 years old, right. and now I'm back on coke, and I'm doing like an eight ball a night. I'm drinking every night, and I saw getting sick. You know, I saw waking up with the shakes, and I don't know what's wrong with me. And, um, you know, I go to the emergency room and they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. 
So mm-hmm. one day I go to work and I like I physically couldn't work. Like I was shaking so bad. I was sweating. I leave work. I go home and my aunt looks at me and she looks at my face and she says, Thomas, you look like my mother did right before she died. Oh, and I said, thank you. I said, thanks a lot. Aunt. And it's really, she goes, no, your skin is gray. What's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to die. So she drives me down to my mother's office. The doctor that she worked for was a good friend of the family. And a man I still talk to to this day, like, you know, here and there. Excellent. Just a great guy. And, um, you know, I go into his office and he's asking me the normal questions. So how do you feel? What's wrong with you? And I tell him I'm going to die. He's like, you're not going to die. And I'm saying, if you knew what I did last night, you would understand why I'm saying that I'm going to die, you know, because, I, you know, it's out of control. I think my heart's going to stop. So he asked me, he said, well, do you drink? And I was like, oh, doc, only a couple of beers here and there. He's like, do you do any drugs? I'm like, no, no drugs at all. <laughs> so, you know, with the information I gave him, I'm sure he had his suspicions. Mm-hmm. But with the information I gave him, the only thing he could deduct is that I had an anxiety disorder. And he prescribes me Ativan and Clonopin. And yeah. he tells me, when you feel like this, take one of these. What you're having is an anxiety attack. This will help you. Right. So I went home that day. I took one of these pills. And I felt better within 20 minutes. And next day, I, you know, go to work. I come home. I drink. I do coke. I wake up the day after that, shaking, sweating. I take a pill. I feel better. And I'm like, that's it. I got my solution. Now I could do what I want at night and just take one of these pills in the morning, and I'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. And that lasted. I lasted about two years. And then in February of 2002, I wind up in a psych ward. You know, I lose that job for various reasons that I talk about in the book. Right. And then, you know, I wind up, I ask for help and, you know, I wind up getting locked up in a psych ward, you know, at 26 years old. And then, you know, that's where it took me. And, mm-hmm. you know, when they take, I think I'm going to rehab, like this nice rehab, you know, all the, all, <laughs> the only thing I knew about rehab when I saw on TV, like my guilty pleasure as a kid was Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> so, I think of like the rehab that, you know, Dylan went to that the nice one in the, the, right. with the water and the pool and the beautiful women, marble so floors, I get to this place. ocean yeah, views. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I thought. Yeah. I get to this place and, you know, they take me into the emergency room. It's a hospital and they take me up in an elevator and the elevator doors open and the, this big steel door buzzes and opens. It closes behind me and I look around and I'm like, this is not. Beverly Hills 90210 rehab right. mm-hmm. and my mother is behind me with my aunt and they're crying and the doctor is that same doctor from Brooklyn is standing next to them and he tells me he goes this is a psychiatric unit of this hospital Tommy and you're going to be here for the next two weeks and I'm like wait a minute like psych come on you know I, this is not what I wanted this is not where I belong joke's over you know I'll right. stop doing cocaine take me home and I'm like no you uh, you have to stay here and uh and that's what happened you know they left and i remember calling all my friends and being like oh you got to come get me out of here and they're like oh no you're good that day <laughs> apparently i apparently was the only one that didn't think i belonged where i belonged <laughs> right and um so you know i go back to my room and i'm crying now because i'm like how did my life get here you know then it all starts flashing and you're like oh my god like my where, what is my life right now i'm 26 years old i have all this promise and i'm sitting in a, in a psychiatric unit in the middle of long island what happened? You know, how did my life get here? Yeah. And you know, there's a knock on the door and the lady says that there's a meeting down the hallway. It's like, oh, AA came up. And I said, I- I'm good, man. I'm here for cocaine. You know, I don't have a problem with alcohol. 
So I don't think I have to go to that meeting because I didn't want to stop drinking. Drinking was like part of my life yeah. for 10 years at that point. And I didn't think that was the problem. So she says, you know, maybe you should go down there and listen. Here's something that you might need to hear. So I go down and, you know, I tell the story all the time because it's a very pivotal point of my life. And this guy came, he was from Staten Island. He was probably about the age I am now. And he, he talked about driving to East New York, Brooklyn to buy crack. And he wouldn't have enough money to get back over the bridge. So he would have to collect cans in the street. And um, as soon as I heard that, I was like, this guy, this guy's smoking crack, collecting cans. I did a little too much coke and I'm in this place, but I'm never going to get there. Like, that's never going to be my life. So I'm good. Like, I don't have to listen to this guy anymore. And after the meeting, I talked to him. And I actually, in so many words, told him that. And he looked at me and he said, kid, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking, you're going to keep doing the things you're doing. And sooner or later, your story is going to be mine, whether you like it or not. Man. So maybe you should really rethink your life and, to, and just take a good look at it. And I was like, all right, you know, thank you. And I shook his hand and I walked away. And next two weeks, I told everybody what they needed to hear. And I get out and uh, my aunt picks me up at like 10 in the morning. And by eight o'clock that night, I was drinking again, you know. Four days later, I'm at a house in Hunter Mountain in uh, upstate New York. I'm in the bathroom. I'm doing coke. Yeah. And like a month later, I took my first Oxycontin. That Oxycontin turns into an 800 milligram a day habit. Fuck. And, uh, you know, at 27 years old, I was sitting in a house in Pennsylvania with a shotgun under my chin wanting to kill myself. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I come home. For, I went to my cousin's house in Pennsylvania to try to dry out. I wind up wanting to kill myself. I don't. I come back to Brooklyn and I go on for another two years after that. Like after that, that depression and misery and wanting to kill myself because I can't live the way I'm living anymore. I go on for another two years. And two years later, I'm collecting cans for crack money. <sighs> um, my story became that guy. Mm. That guy's story. Fuck. I became, I'm smoking crack. I'm sniffing two bundles of heroin every day. And, you know, I broke. You know, I couldn't take it anymore. And I, I finally asked for help. And I was finally like deep down sincere and legitimate about the help I was asking for, yeah. you know, and my poor mother and cousin, I, I sat down with them leading up to that. I took a box of Coracetin, cough medicine, because I had tapered off my drinking and drug use for about a month leading up to that night. And it was, it was actually a year to the day that my aunt passed away. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm sitting at dinner with my mother and I told her, I said, my, I think I'm going to stop for good. And she's like, oh, that's great. You know, I hope you do. And uh, I said, I have some heartburn. Could I get $20 to go to the store and get some Pepsi for my, you know, for the heartburn? So she was like hesitant to give it to me, but she gave it to me. And I sincerely was going to go and get Pepsi AC. Sure. And then I went to the store and I'm in the aisle and I see Coracetin. And I remember seeing a special about it like months earlier that if you took enough of it, you get high. And just like that, you know, it just like re like reflex. I bought the box and I took like half the box. And I, I I can't even describe the feeling. It was all over the place. But I was very high. And she asked me what I had taken. And I said, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm blowing in her face to tell her that I'm not drinking. And I saw it in her face that she was done, that she had had it. Oh. And it scared me. And I said, that's it, I'm done. And I sat down with her and my cousin and I told them everything. And they were just like, 
you know, they were taken back, but, um, you know, they were very supportive. And, you know, I started going to meetings the next day and I stayed sober for three and a half years. And um, I got everything, everything in my life that is good, that was good was because I got sober and because I was working a program. You know, I met the girl, I got the car, I had some money in my pocket, I got the job that I'm still on today. And, um, you know, I just, I started going and I started not listening anymore. The open-mindedness wasn't there anymore. The willingness to learn wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And uh, I just stopped going, you know. I uh, I used to go to my home group all the time and we had a kitchen in the back and I would get there an hour early and I would sometimes two hours early and we would all eat and we, we had a crew. We called the crew. I actually just went to one of their son's fifth birthday uh, this past weekend right and we used to go there early and we used to sit in the back. We used to either order food or we used to cook in the kitchen and we used to eat and we used to talk and we used to laugh and that's what I wanted. But once the meeting started, I went back into the kitchen and I complained about who was sharing what and I can't listen to this anymore and I'm not coming here. I can't li- I can't do this anymore. I'm fine. It's been three and a half years. I'll be good. And you know, I hurt my back and I went to the doctor. He prescribed me Vicodin. And I remember taking it and saying, I, I shouldn't be taking this. Six months before that, I broke my ankle and I turned down painkillers. I told them I was an addict and I couldn't take it. And that was right before my third anniversary. Fast forward six months later, and I took the prescription and I drove to a pharmacy, but something in my head told me that I should call somebody. So I called my friend Chris and I told him and he sat on the phone with me and he said, throw it away, come to my house, we'll have dinner, we'll talk, we'll play video games, you'll be fine. I said, all right, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I hung the phone up. I walked into the pharmacy. I filled the prescription. I put it in my car. I went to his house. I I didn't tell him about it. Two weeks later, I took one Vicodin, and that was it. Very long, convoluted story. It took me eight years to get back from that. Fuck. You know, and uh, it's just uh, I could be here for another three days telling that whole story, but, you know, there there were times that I tried to stop you know, I went on the Suboxone program. I then I figured out how to go back and forth with that. And then I was back on benzos. And, you know, I had a couple of surgeries in that whole process. So it always became very easy to go back and forth on painkillers. And then it just blew up and exploded. There's only so long when you're an addict like us, like me, that you could hold that at bay before it just gets out of control. And it did. And it, it took me eight years, you know, eight years. It was like two years of in and out and then just six straight years of, you know, just every day, every day, you know, doctor shopping, buying pills in the street, um, just insanity, you know, just, uh, you know, I got promoted on my job. I'm supervising now, but I was driving a garbage truck around, you know, Brooklyn, New York for, for years, not really in the right frame of mind to do it. You know, and uh, just very dangerous, very dangerous, very irresponsible. And um, did you, you know, ever, thank God I'm alive. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Thank God I didn't kill anybody else. Oh, yeah. I know for me, that was the big thing when I had a DUI accident was that I didn't harm anybody else is my greatest gratitude. It's like, eh, I still have injuries that I suffer for. Same thing. Can't do the Viking and the opioids. 
not that I had a problem before, but I got that fear for sure that if I did, it would be like, oh, okay, I found something new. Yeah. Um, did you incur any legal troubles throughout the whole process? I mean, I know you spoke about stealing and, and things. Of that I nature. did. Uh, no, I never did. And, you know, I have a lot of people. I work with this guy. He's the best. You know, he's technically my boss, but he really isn't. We sit next to each other and we kind of work on the same level. Sure. So he reads the book. And, uh, you know, when it first came out, I had a lot of people calling me and saying, you know, we're so happy that you wrote this book. But honestly, we're surprised you're still alive. We're surprised you're still alive, blah, 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 blah. He goes, enough of that surprise you're still alive. He goes, how did you never get arrested? <laughs> That's what and I'm wondering. I don't know. The only thing I can attribute that to is God. I mean, never being in that wrong place because there were times that I was supposed to be somewhere and I just happened not to be there and people got arrested. Um, I talk about it in the book. One time I was going to pick up cocaine and some kid in my neighborhood asked me to go get beer for him instead. So I gave the money to somebody else to pick it up for me and they wind up getting arrested instead of me. You know, the whole thing in that firm, um, I was threatened with legal stuff. And because of my cousin's position there, they kind of let that slide. Sure. Other stuff in, you know, the bank I didn't get caught for. And, you know, by the grace of God, that's that's all I can say is yeah. by the grace of God, because every any given day I, I could have been locked up. Yeah. You know, I there was there's something I didn't put in the book. Um, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but. I, uh, my aunt was sick and towards the end, I talk about, I always got my Oxycontin and my Percocets from her stash. And um, on time I went up, up to her house and I saw a prescription pad and I had been taking so many of them that I didn't want to steal them from her because, not because I didn't want to steal them from her, it's because I didn't want to get caught and I feel like there would be too many missing. Sure. So I see this pad and I called in a prescription for Vicodin with that doctor's credentials. And I went to the, the pharmacy, the same writing that I, years later that I cashed that other script in. And I walked in, I was picking up something for myself, I think antibiotic or something. And I called the script in under my aunt's name. And I told them, oh, I'm going to pick up my aunt's too while I'm here. And they were like, oh, it's not ready. Come back in an hour. I said, all right, no problem. So I go home and my aunt, my mother, like looking at me and they're up in arms. The pharmacy called the doctor because they thought it was weird that the prescription was for Vicodin and not for Oxycontin or Percocet. Huh. And my mother dragged me back to that store a half hour later. And I get there and there's two plainclothes cops, two uniform cops, the store manager, the pharmacist, the pharmacy assistant that I got, that I went to, that saw me a half hour earlier. She looked at me dead in the eye and said it wasn't him. Huh, jeez. Maybe she felt bad for me. I don't know, but uh, fuck. I can only attribute that to God. I, and that's that's it. That's the only way. Hey, one of our former guests put it really well: is that uh, uh, thank goodness life isn't fair because <laughs> shit would have been a lot worse. Absolutely, I have a, a old sponsor that always says, that "If you got what you deserved, you wouldn't be here." So, uh, you know, I got a question for you too. Have you? So since your story essentially turned into the guy from AA where you're collecting cans and all that, have you talked to him since you've been clean? No, never. I mean, I never saw him again. Oh, he okay. was a speaker in, you know, in a psych ward that I was in. Much right. like, you know, I speak at these rehabs and detoxes. I rarely see the people that, you know, I speak to afterwards. Once in a while I do. And it's always nice to see them. But, 
I couldn't tell you his name. I couldn't tell you really what he looked like. I remember he had white, whitish hair. Right, um, right, right. What he did, though, he gave me a big book, though. And uh, when I opened that book, whatever it was, three years later, my, so my first sober day was March 12th of 2005. So the next day, I, go, I, I get up in the morning, I try to go to a meeting, and I walk to a hospital that I had been flagged in as a drug seeker mm-hmm. to my, go to my first meeting. And when I get there, they tell me the meeting moved. It's not there anymore. So that was my first attempt to go to a meeting. And I'm like, what do I do now? So I go home and I'm going to reference the Sopranos again. I love it. The, ep- the episode where, you know, Christopher gets back from rehab and he's talking to Tony in the car about the steps. Right. And he talks about step nine, how, you know, to make amends to the evil. And Tony's like, yeah, I think you should skip that one. Let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, that's what I'll do. I'll do my steps. I got the big book out and I'm looking and I'm writing letters to all my friends on the block that haven't talked to me in years that I robbed their houses that I did all these terrible things to. And I write all these letters and I go to all their houses and I deliver them. And some accepted the letter with, you know, a smile and a handshake. Some were like, you know, get out of here. But that's what I did. And then I finally make it to the meeting that night. And afterwards, the guy, the old guy starts talking to me about, you know, service and this. You got to come early, stay late and do the steps. I'm like, oh, I did those already. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, I did them this morning. I, I didn't make the meeting. So I opened the book and I did my steps already. So I'm good with that. He just patted me <laughs> on the back. He goes, keep coming, kid. <laughs> well, that's one of the things. And it's funny because there's, uh, you know, my experience with AA, some people, ah, we got to be kind of delicate and working through the steps. Whereas, you know, my sponsor's like, fuck it, let's get to it. Let's get through this. Come on. There's no reason to waste time. You know, let's yeah, work you know, on it. Every, everybody's different. You know, uh, the guy I have now, he's, you know, I've been, I've been sober five and a half years and he's a old timer, great guy. Um, takes people through the book, has studies in his house, but he's all about the fellowship and the connection of people. Yeah. So as far as going like his thing going through work and the like he's not about that and he'll if you have a problem and you say pat could you take me through this he will but as far as you know that you know you got to do this 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 and this that's just not his style and you know god bless everybody's style i used to be oh that guy's doing it wrong whatever works for you works for you man because mm-hmm. It's saving your life. So if you have to take 10 years, if you want to do it right away, do it right away. Whatever works for you, just do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and um, uh, for me, it's it's definitely the thing that, that, that you mentioned, that connectivity. That's the big, huge thing for me. Coming to an environment just of, of people of just sober mind. That's all I need. Hey, we got enough yeah. in common. Cool. We can sit in fellowship now. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk more about uh, before we get to the fun random questions and give you the last word. The, the the work you're doing now, I want to know more about that, but also the perspective on um, things that are going on now. I know for us, we've Mikey and I and some of our guests, we're so grateful that we are done with that in our life because of the things like fentanyl that's out there and killing you know people, especially teenagers, left and right and stuff like that. How do you reflect kind of on what's going on there out now in, in the drug culture being that you're out of doing or you're out doing service? Yeah. I, uh, I tell my wife all the time I'd be dead. I, 1000% I'd be dead if I was out there right now. Cause my whole claim to fame was, 
you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm taking pills. I know what I'm getting. You don't know what you're getting out there anymore. Yeah. I have one guy that I sponsor that I'm friends with that, you know, he died in his bathroom and they had to, you know, knock him back because he thought he bought a Roxy and it was a pressed fentanyl. Fuck. There's a guy I talk about in the book and I, I'm still friends with him to this day. I was in rehab with him in 2016. He introduced me to my sponsor. He, he took me to my first meeting. We still friends. He's been struggling. I hadn't heard from him in a few months until the other day. And he called me, he just got out of treatment. And, uh, you know, he was taking Percocet and Roxy's and, you know, he went there and when he did his urine test, it didn't come up for Oxy. It came up for fentanyl. So this whole time he thinks he's doing Percocet and he's it, you, you can't get anything out there anymore. Yeah. So if you're out there right now, you're, you know, in any stage, you were playing Russian roulette with your life with the with the opiates and the benzos and whatever I was doing. But now you might as well put a bullet in a gun, spin the wheel and put it to your head because that's what you're doing. Yeah. You know, um, so many people are dying. So many people died over this whole, you know, pandemic and the lockdown. You know, you hear every week, you just hear somebody else. And um, a couple of weeks ago, a guy on my job passed away from it. And uh, it, it's rough out there. You know, it's rough out there. And, the, you know, the rehab around here just started opening its doors again to service, you know, to go up there and speak. And I was able to go up there uh, a couple of weeks ago and speak to some people. And, um, you know, it brings you back. You know, I love going. I love going up there and doing these things. But I also like the fact that I'm able to leave when I'm done <laughs> because, uh, you know, you see that hurt and you know how it feels, you know. Yeah. And um I'm very happy that I'm very happy and grateful that I'm past that point in my life. And, you know, I've been past it twice. And that first time around, I took it for granted. You know, a lot of people say that first time's a gift. The second time is hard. And it was, man, that, uh, you know, I didn't think I was taking it for granted back then, but now I look back on it and, you know, I never thought I was going to drink again. I never thought I was going to get high again. And I, and I just stopped giving back. I took everything and I never gave back. Yeah. So now I try diligently every day to just try to live the right way, you know, and I, listen, I fall short. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I have my defects of character. You could ask my wife, um, <laughs> but all in all, I, I live my life a much better way today. And I, I try to give back, you know, it's, it's about me. But it's also about giving back because if it wasn't for those people that were here before me, I would not be here today. Yeah. So I try to be that person to, you know, to other people. And it's a big part of the reason I wrote this book. Yeah. For sure. Well, we thank you for writing the book and, and continuing to get out there. Now, when you do the speaking, is it usually at groups? Are you doing stuff where you're even going out talking to high school kids? What what other kind of engagement? I haven't. I haven't done that yet. I would like to, but, you know, it's tough with the whole COVID thing. Before right. everything started, I was um, – my my first job was gotten for me by uh, a state senator in New York, and my aunt was really good friends with him. And I actually reached out to him um, right before election day in 2016. 2016? No, 2018. It was a uh, senatorial election, and he lost. Hmm. But I stayed in touch with him, and I was he was supposed to start getting me connected with schools and stuff. And it just fell through; it never happened. So for now, you know, I do meetings, I do rehabs, hospitals, and um, I've done a couple of incoming uh, classes for my department, Excellent. and uh, 
you know, whatever I could do, wherever I could get the word out there, you know, I try to do it. Well, Mikey, uh, random question time. You ready? Let's have some yes, fun. Yes, I am. All right, this shit is just silly, so have a good time with it. This one isn't really so random based off the conversation, but I got to ask, what's your number one favorite mafia movie? Goodfellas. Ooh, uh, I was going to say Goodfellas or a Bronx Tale. Goodfellas. <laughs> that is Bronx excellent. Tale. I, I like Bronx Tale, too. I actually, I, I talked to Lilo on, you know, Instagram back and forth a lot. He's a, he's a good dude, man, and he turned his life around. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to go with Goodfellas, man. Goodfellas is my favorite. Oh, of course. Hell it's yeah. Classic. Hell yeah. Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Time travel. Why? That's interesting. And it's not for the reason you would think to go back and do everything over again. It's right. just because like there's a lot of different people in history and a lot of periods of time that I would just love to have been in. Sure. Revolutionary Wolf. For whatever reason I'm infatuated with that. Like I just want to see what went on back then. Just like like the the frame of mind and you know what was going on with people. Just like knowing how everything is today. And then just seeing how it was back then, I, yeah. I would just love to see that stuff. Just history and how it unraveled. And yeah, I would uh, just very interested in that stuff. Fascinating. We've never gotten that before. I was yeah. just, yeah, I would time travel back to like the 70s or something where, <laughs> you know, better music and you didn't have to worry about mass so much or the world ending. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, okay, so I've gotten, uh, I've gotten both sides on this next question not from any of our guests but random people that i've asked and some of them i don't understand however would you rather fight a horse-sized chicken or 10 chicken-sized horses i was listening to a podcast the other day <laughs> it was these two mob guys and they asked this question really no and they asked the the guy who hosted asked the the former mobster the question and then they laughed about it for the entire episode after that. <laughs> and only because I heard it so much, I'm going to have to say, what was it again? I'm sorry, go ahead. A horse-sized was... chicken, just one of them, or okay. 10 chicken-sized horses. Okay. Mind you, those it's little bastards be... are still strong. <laughs> it's going to be the horse-sized chicken. Really? You're the first yes, to take it. Because... You're the first on Listen. this podcast to take it. Really? Yeah, but I've gotten multiple answers like from family and stuff like that. They've also. I'm gonna say the horse size chicken because he might, you know, the horse size chicken might beat me, but I just gotta land one good shot with the ten of them. You never know; they could be biting your ankles. You and... just punt them. That, <laughs> yeah, but there's there's ten of them. If one jumps on yeah. your neck, if they yeah, get you on the ground, you're fucked. But yeah, at the same time, it's all over. You got one beak the size of a horse nose, one peck, and you're just. I, yeah. I, you know, I, go, I have this conversation with people, so I'm very interested on their answers. Yeah, but you kill the, the huge chicken, you're eating good for a while, you know what I'm there saying? There you go. And like <laughs> I said, it just takes that one good shot, and, you know, he's down. The Gross other ones, you know, you knock them out, then you get nine other ones coming at you. Too much. Uh, grocery stores are still open. It's, it's, just a <laughs> random, it's just a random question. Yeah, but Mikey, there's a difference uh, between the rugged nature of yes, I've killed this meal. You know, it's like yeah, no, it's, I, I don't, I don't have. Um, that. Here's a question, just kind of not one that we usually do, but as you could tell, my co-host over here, fabulously tattooed. I'm tattooed a little bit, but I know and I love the cover of your book. It's got the back of your hand tattoo. What is the meaning and significance for you for tattoos? Was this something post, uh, you know, in your rehabilitation phases, stuff that happened during or? Um, all right. So my, my father died when I was 21 and um, 
it started when I was a kid. I wanted to, again, because I wanted to fit in with the kids in the neighborhood. They were all getting earrings. And my mm-hmm. father was like, yeah, not getting an earring. I'll cut your earlobe off, blah, blah, blah. So finally, I was playing hockey when I was playing the game. And I said, if I get a hat trick tonight, you have to let me get the earring. He says, all right, you know, bet. You do that, you get the earring. I scored a goal with like a minute into the game and I pointed up to him in the stands and I pointed in my ear. <laughs> And then I hit the post like four other times in that game, and I didn't score again. Oh shit! He winds up he winds up letting me get the earring, and then I get a second earring in the other ear. Then I want to get a tattoo, and he says, "Tommy, he goes, if you get a tattoo, I will cut the skin right out of your arm." So, twenty one years old, my father passes away. Two weeks later, I went and I got a cross for him, for my father, mm-hmm. just to kind of like give it to him like, uh, like you know, now I got it and then I got him and then I got his face on my shoulder and uh it's just always something every tattoo I have means something to me and um I got maybe two more and then the rest of them were in you know either in recovery or when I was out there in and out you know I have my cousin that passed away from you know an overdose I have a prayer for him on my side I have you know stuff uh like gratitude stuff up here I have the serenity prayer St. Michael um 911 that's a big one and i have a the eagle and then the buildings on the back with the flag and yeah. I have the virgin mary jesus you know all all stuff that you know means something to me that symbolizes stuff to me and that's it but uh, i just love them you know i uh my sister-in-law bought me a gift certificate to get another one and i haven't used it yet so i haven't really decided what i want but uh <laughs> I got to get one soon. Well, hopefully the missus really likes them too, yeah? She, uh, she loves them. She's the one that uh, this rose on my hand. Her middle name is Rose. Oh, right. So on. she want. here's the story. I had my ex-girlfriend's nickname tattooed on my wrist. <laughs> oh, boy. And and she hated that. Yeah. And I had it for a while. Yeah. And uh, I said, honey, it's not that I don't want to cover it up, but I have to find something good to cover it up with. And uh, she sends me this picture one day of the rose. And she's like, oh, my middle name is Rose. You got that. So I get it. But her mother's name is Rose. So every time I go there, her mother's like, oh, he got it for me. <laughs> I got it for your daughter. But, you got the bonus uh, points. Yeah. But yeah, no, right. she loves him. Thank God. Right on. That's dope. Yeah. I've, if I if I wasn't a single dad, I'd probably be, well, maybe not as covered as YouTube, but I'd be more on my way. Although I got my next one coming up September. So. Yeah, I only nice. get mine for the girls. Okay, so the next question. No, He's lying out I'm of his head. <laughs> if you were stuck on a, uh, I guess you kind of already answered that with Goodfellas. Give me another one besides Goodfellas. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what one movie and what album would you bring with you? Yeah, you know, I knew you were going to ask this question because I've listened to a bunch of episodes <laughs> and I was thinking about it. The movie, I'm going to say Rocky 2. Okay. Oh, hell yeah. Because I am a huge fan of Rocky. Um, it was probably the first real movie I watched with my father and I thought it was a real boxing match. And when I was a kid, I was like six years old, maybe five, six years old when it came out. And I used, people used to babysit me and they used to be like, Oh, what movie you want us to rent? Like you want Disney? Want this? I was like, no, Rocky two. Like I just (laughs) loved Rocky two and all the Rocky movies. So be Rocky two. My musical taste is all over the place. Mm. So I was thinking I had three albums in mind. Uh, coming into this, I'm gonna go with the Pearl Jam Unplugged okay. from 1992. Oh. Little Pearl Jam, yeah. right on. Now you yeah. said music all over the place. Uh, what other? What would the other two have been? Uh, Lincoln Park Hybrid Theory mm. and Eminem Recovery. 
Yeah. And you really are all over the place. Yeah, kind of a nice, <laughs> nice gradual yeah, all move. Over, yeah. All over the place. All over it. the place. Uh, all right, let's go uh, one more here, and then we'll leave you with the final uh, thoughts. Is uh, If a movie was made about your life, what genre would it be, and who would you want to play you? Oh, what genre? <laughs> Definitely drama. <laughs> um, who would play me? You know, I always say this, and it's far out there, Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, yeah. He's I just love the way great. he acts. Um, I just, ever since Boiler Room, um, I just love the way he goes about acting. Like when he was in Friends, the character he played there, and then Sneaky Pete. I oh, love yeah. his mannerisms. I just, I just think he's a really good actor. Yeah, mm-hmm. very so. underrated. Sneaky Pete was such a good freaking show. Yeah. I was bummed that I was like, nope, that's all you get. We're done. Yeah, Son I know. Of I know. Uh, well, Mr. Figlioli, we really appreciate your time, and uh, we like to leave the guests with any last words of uh, encouragement for, for those listening. Maybe they're, they've struggled with addiction, mental health, or someone they know and love uh, does. So what words yeah, might um, you have to offer? Yeah, first, I just want to thank you guys for having me. It's been a long time coming. We had to cancel a few <laughs> times, but I do appreciate you guys having me. It was uh, it was an honor to be on the show. And um, the only thing I could say to anybody out there that's struggling is if you think that there's no hope left, you're wrong. If you don't want to live anymore, there's a whole life ahead of you that you'll be missing out on because I was in that place. I was in that place where I did not want to live anymore. And I was in that place where I thought that I couldn't turn my life around. And if I would have known then what I know now and see where my life is, all I wanted was a normal life at that point. And what I have now has far exceeded that. So all I could say is that if you are out there and you are struggling, there's always hope. So make today that day, you know? make that choice and just change your life around because I, you know i promise you life does not get easier but it does get better mr fig newton himself thomas figlioli great freaking guy there what a good guy man great talk great <laughs> I, talk I, you know what he got me cracking up the most was where he was talking about uh you know, my wife will sit down and watch the Mets game with me, and, and you're like, I can't find, oh, I got to go to the East Coast so I can find a woman that'll watch the Niners game with me and enjoy it. He goes, I didn't say she enjoyed it. I just said she'll sit and watch it with me. Well, my thing is like, when's it over? When's it over? It's like, there's a, there's a clock on the bottom right. Just watch that. Right. When it strikes zero, that's when it's over. Uh, are you, I've never asked you, are you a big like post-game guy too? Like if they win, do you watch that or are you just like, eh. It depends on who. And it yeah. depends on what game. Like, if the Niners won the NFC Championship or the Super Bowl, then, yeah, I'll watch post-game. But, you know, if they win the game, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll watch the end of it, you know, sure. see who has to talk about what. But, you know. Overall. I'm just glad they won. Yeah. yeah. I feel you vibe. I feel you vibe. Well, and if you're like me and you enjoy to read and you enjoy inspirational autobiographies, don't forget to pick up Carlos Vieira's autobiography, Knocking Doors Down, the book that really spawned on this podcast. The link is in the description. Get it on Amazon. All the proceeds, 100%, go back to helping the Carlos Vieira Foundation, their three programs, the race to end the stigma, that's around mental health, the race for autism, families who have children with autism, and and, then it helps uh, with scholarships to meet their needs, and, of course, the race 
Ways to Be Drug-Free program, getting kids involved in activities, keeping them off the streets, away from gangs and drugs. We thank you all for listening to the Knocking Doors Down podcast. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, hey, do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating and a review and uh, tell a friend. That's how we spread word. If you get some value out of this, enjoy it. Uh, Share it with someone. Of course, also on Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeart app. We are everywhere you get podcasts. And if you prefer to watch it in uh, video form like uh, Uncle Mikey over here. Such as myself. Hey, click that link for our YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Not only do we have clips of some of the uh, interviews, but we've got the full-length interviews themselves. My uh, cohort, uh, Mikey, uh, anything else you would like to add? No, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit carlosvierafoundation.org today. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content, establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.